Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan, everybody. I pray that you are doing wonderful, and thank you so much for joining us again today. And today we continue our topic of salvation. The last few episodes we talked about heaven, hell, and purgatory. And fittingly, with uh, you know when we got into purgatory, we got into some New Testament principles of our salvation being continued. That Jesus continues to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and purifies us and makes us holy and perfect and like Himself. Today we're going to be talking about um, just that. That salvation, we are saved in the past, we're being saved right now, and we hope to be saved in the future. Um, so what the, all this entails, we're going to talk about, here's an overview of today's episode. We're going to talk about the once saved, always saved uh, doctrine. We're going to talk about uh, how um, salvation is a past, present, and future reality that we're going to talk about where it's clear in scripture that Jesus and uh, the apostles are talking about Christians falling away, about persevering. Uh, we're going to talk about Abraham's righteousness and his faith that's talked about in the New Testament letters. We're also going to define and um, show, we're going to define terms such as redeem, forgive, sanctify, righteousness, justification, on. The and the like. Now we're going to define them and actually show how each of them are presented in a those that threefold structure right in the New Testament, right in Scripture. How we are, it's a past reality, it's a current reality, and that we hope to be saved. Um, so uh, let's get right into it. So once saved, always saved. It's a doctrine that's not believed by all Protestants, but it is pretty prevalent here in America, and I think it's the thing that we hear most of. Like, are you saved? This is a one-time event. And so there's actually two different views about once saved, always saved. Some people who say once saved, always saved is talking about the Christians who will have the perseverance of holding on to the faith when they die, until they die. So in other words, true Christians will have perseverance of holding on to the faith until they die. And actually people who've fallen away, some people teach that uh, within this realm of once saved, always saved, that view is that if people fall away, from Christ, they were actually never saved or never a true Christian to begin with. So there was a never point in their life, even when they were following Christ, that they were actually true Christians. Um, the second view is called eternal security. And this view is the most pretty radical. Um, it's basically, they basically teach that you cannot lose your salvation, no matter how grieve, how gravely you sinned, even after accepting Christ. They even say you will get into heaven even if you reject Christ after accepting him. So you basically said these words of accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and there is nothing that can take away heaven from you. Um, I was actually reading a book about, uh, this is several years ago now, well, several, a couple years ago when I was, uh, after my conversion, reading all these Protestant pastors and these on-fire Protestants who converted to Catholicism, and one of them teaching about, like, when they went door-to-door evangelizing, a woman accepted, uh, you know, Jesus into her heart, and this guy who became Catholic later, he's watching his friend tell her, like, so you are always saved. Like, even if you murdered somebody, will you be saved? And she was like, uh, I, I don't think so. She, he's like, yes, you will be saved, even if you murder somebody, because you've accepted Jesus. So, uh, yeah, so that is um, another view. So one is true Christians will have perseverance. And the second view is eternal security, that no matter what you do, you will be saved. Um, and just really quick on that eternal security that you cannot lose your salvation no matter how bad you do it. We're going to get into a whole lot of scripture today that basically confronts that. And we've already done that in a lot of our episodes of our topic of salvation. But let's just like recap really quick. Um, Jesus himself 
warns against the reality of sin. You know, cut your hand, cut your hand off, pluck your eye out if it even causes you to sin. Remember that it's not literal. That he's being, uh, he's being hyperbolic about cutting off the seriousness of sin. He even talks about that those who teach others to sin, it would be better for them to have not been born, let alone those who actually sin. Um, nearly every single letter of the new uh, or page of the New Testament is warning people of sinning. St. Paul talks about that those who sin are a slave to sin and that we must not gratify the desires of the flesh. And if we do, it reaps corruption. And those who do certain things that are contrary to uh, the truth, goodness, and beauty that God has given us and the moral law and the natural law that will not inherit the kingdom of God. (laughs) So people who grave sin, people who know it's a grave matter and do it anyways, they willingly and freely do it. They will not go to heaven. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. So just to name a few, um, you know, that whole eternal security aspect has already been debunked in our salvation episode. But today, uh, just that is just a quick reminder. And also throughout this whole episode, we're going to be getting into a lot of scripture. So, But those two views, those once saved, always saved views, um, they're trying to really get us to feel assured, and we're going to get into uh, uh, where this is actually talked about in Scripture, that you may know that you are saved. Um, they're really trying to get us to feel like we're, our salvation is secure. We don't have to do anything now. We don't have to, uh, even if we sin, like, you know, it's just we feel good and certain about our salvation. Well, there's a few things to that. One, we're not God. We do not have metaphysical certainty, like he's the judge, not us. Um, and that's actually a very workspace. Like, look what I did. I said these things and now I'm saved. Like, there's nothing that can take it away. Um, even myself, even my sin. Um, and also, really the whole thing is like, now I know that I'm saved. Like, I don't have to worry about it. Well, Christians who believe in that do still fear about it. And why? Because it doesn't get rid of the fear. Because it's an unnecessary fear of, well, one view is, oh, shoot, I might not be a true Christian right now because what if I fall away later, right? So like that one view of true Christians will have perseverance um, is like, well, right now I might not be a actual saved true Christian because later on I might fall away. So even if I fall away later, then that means everything in my past was for nothing. Like I literally had no relationship with Jesus. I never truly uh, was following him and so on. So uh, this fear and anxiety about the future um, is unnecessary because salvation is right now. Second Corinthians 6, 2, it says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. And God's grace is right now. It's in reality. It's not in some theoretical thought of ours about the future. So yes, we want to, we hope and we pray that we will have uh, the strength to persevere and to um, follow God's grace all the way until the end. But he's asking us to be in the reality of right now, that we would give our hearts to him in every single situation right now, that he would be the Lord of our lives right now. So it really doesn't get rid of that fear. Um, and actually, I would be even more afraid of those views than the cat, the Catholic and the biblical view of salvation, that right now I can have certainty and I can have confidence and assurance, um, not metaphysical, not 100%, but like I examine my conscience and I'm following Jesus, like I, I've, I'm saved, <laughs> you know, praise the Lord. Um, so this whole view is once saved, always saved is really based on two different uh, biblical themes. One of them is in Hebrews 7.27 and Hebrews 9.12 and Hebrews 10.10. It says, Jesus died once and for all. And some people take that as, see, and once you receive Jesus, 
Your sins, past, present, and future, are all forgiven in this one time. Your words, your faith in Jesus has now cleansed you of all of your sins, even in the future. Well, this whole, uh, the letter to the Hebrews is all about how Jesus has lifted up humanity. Jesus has lifted up the, uh, the, the faith of Israel. He has lifted all of it up. He's actually transformed it. What it used to be in just temporal effects, now it is participating in the very life of heaven, the life of grace, because Jesus, he died once and for all. And it says that, so you no longer have to go and sacrifice a bull and a ram and a bird and all these things in the Old Testament ritual uh, uh, sacrifices, right? Because that's what how you'd like, you need to go there for a, a sin offering because you had sinned and you wanted to be reconciled with God. So you'd bring an offering. So you'd have to bring a new offering every single time. But Jesus is the one offering. And not only did he go into the, to the, to he didn't just go into a earthly temple. He went into the heavenly temples not made by human hands to offer uh, into the, he went into the Holy of Holies in heaven and to give his once and for all sacrifice. And it's a living sacrifice. And this is the same reason why the the mass isn't a new sacrifice. It's a new sacrifice in the sense that we are participating in it, but Jesus, his once and for all sacrifice, that's the sacrifice in heaven that we're participating in right now in reality. And it's the same thing for salvation. We're not offering a new sacrifice to, for our sins to be forgiven. We're participating and receiving that once and for all sacrifice that Jesus gave who uh, entered into the heavenly temple, the heavenly holy of holies, um, as our high priest to offer himself as expiation for our sins. And because Jesus' sacrifice is once and for all, and as the letter of the Hebrews and Revelation shows, it's a living sacrifice. His, he's a lamb as if slain, presenting his sacrifice always, eternally, and uh, before the Father on our behalf, uh, taking on our human flesh and transforming and lifting up into the divine nature of God. And because of that, you cannot repeat something that's everlasting other word in other words his sacrifice is a living sacrifice always and eternal and so presented before the father so you cannot repeat something that is uh happening eternally right it's only our participation and it's because of that once and for all sacrifice as our high priest and as the lamb of god entering into the holy of holies that we in time and space we actually participate into that same once and for all sacrifice both in salvation and in the mass Another really cool insight about sacrifice is that the sacrifices in the Old Covenant, it had two parts. It would be the death or the slaughter of the animal, and then it would be the offering. So Jesus, uh, his his sacrifice can, includes both his death and his offering. But as scripture says, death has no longer dominion over him, right? He's defeated death. So his death was once, but his offering is eternal. And what's so beautiful about that is that it shows, especially like in the Eucharist, he says at the Last Supper to do this, the Greek word poeo, which means actually offer. It's a sacrificial term. It's offer this in memory of me. So he commands us to do this. And so we in the Eucharist, we participate in that eternal offering that Jesus makes in the Holy of Holies, the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly uh, place that he as priest and as the Lamb of God makes an eternal offering, an eternal intercession for us. So that's what we step into. Jesus died once, but his sacrifice of offering is eternal. So that's the once and for all. Another argument for once saved, always saved is typically Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. The famous that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And a lot of people will say nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, even sin. Well, 
this will be flying right in the face of contrary to all of the rest of scripture that warns us about sinning and how we can fall that we're going to hear later that we can fall away as Christians. We can, um, uh, we need perseverance and endurance and that, uh, to persevere with Christ, we cannot sin. So, uh, all these things that is listed in Romans eight right here are external things, external persecution, sufferings, all these things that are in the world. Nothing can separate us from, from this. So let's actually just read it real quick, starting in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? So all these external things outside of us that um, other people may impress upon us or things that we cannot control. And then he goes on. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, for our, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So Jesus is, is the, the one true lamb, but we are all uh, in, in Christ, uh, lamb, lambs of God, right? So we enter into Christ's suffering uh, because he actually entered into ours, and it becomes salvific. And it continues, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So nothing can separate us from the love of God from Christ Jesus our Lord. All those things, amen. But to sin... That is exactly what separates us, and that's what we will see as we continue our uh, this episode today, talking about how we can follow away as Christians and how it it is a direct warning from Jesus and all of the New Testament from the the apostles, warning us that we will not inherit the kingdom of God if we participate in sin. And then the la- the other aspect of um, once saved always saved is the verse in First John chapter 5, verse 13, where St. John says, I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So there it is. Like, if you're a saved Christian, you know that you have eternal life. It's for certain. You can't lose it. Well, there's a lot of issues with this. Is One is in that very same letter, he's talking about remaining and abiding in Jesus, remaining in the light, to walk in the light, to not sin, to have confidence when Jesus comes so that we do not shrink away, to to love our brothers so that we might have assurance that we actually love God. And that he warns against the Antichrist. He warns against against people who say that they love uh, God but uh, love don't love their brother. So in that very same letter, he's warning us against sin and against uh, and, and encouraging us to walk with Jesus. And and another thing is too is when because uh, we're full-heartedly yes amen to first John 5:13 but the no uh, that when we say that you may know that you have eternal life we're we know that Saint John because of the whole context of the entire Bible and um, and this very same letter is that he's saying with assurance with confidence but not a metaphysical 100% certainty because again we're not God <laughs> and that's a very workspace mentality so um, and then lastly is there's actually uh, throughout the, all of John's letter, that phrase of, I write this to you, and then he lists all these things on why he's writing this letter. It's not just here in 513 where he says that you may know that you have eternal life. He actually lists out a lot of things, and I'll just read them off. And this is starting in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 5. And just because it is uh, a decent amount, I'm not going to list off chapter and verse. But he's he's writing this letter so that we might walk in the light, so that we may not sin, keeping Jesus' commandments, to walk as Jesus walked, not loving the world, 
abiding in the Son and in the Father, to helping our brothers, so that loving in deed and in truth, testing the spirits to see whether they are from God, to love one another, and to having the Son. So we clearly see that in 1 John, St. John is not talking about once saved, always saved uh, doctrine. And now we're going to get into the positive evidence for past, present, and future reality. So first and foremost, like it is a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is relationship with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit revealed to abide in the presence of Jesus. And most perfectly, that relationship is given in the context of a father and child and, and bridegroom to bride. We are the children of God and we are the bride of God, right? So within the context of that relationship and even in uh, the prodigal son, that's the father-son relationship. You are still a son, but you go off. You leave the father and you go and spend it on whatever that inheritance, you waste it, right? That you receive from the father. And the other image being uh, bridegroom to bride. We are the bride. God is our divine bridegroom. And in that marriage relationship, if you walk away, you're committing adultery, right? And so Jesus talks about uh, very seriously the sins of adultery and in the Old Testament talking about uh, the relationship of when people would go and uh, and have idolatry and they would sin, God would relate it to uh, adultery, right? So sin is adultery. So even in just that relationship aspect that's fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, humanity to, to God, when we walk away from those relationships and they weaken, I mean, we commit very serious sin and we walk away. So first, it's a relationship. And once you walk away from that relationship and you're not abiding in the presence of Jesus, we're in trouble because apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So, uh, but that's just a relational kind of analogy that's very clear in the New Testament. But we're going to get into very specific verses now. It's going to be quite a bit of scripture. But um, just a reminder, scripture often talks about specific parts of salvation within a specific letter or chapter or verse. So a lot of times what happens is those single things get pulled out and taken out of context because they're not taking the whole of scripture. But as Catholic Christians, we take the whole of scripture, the whole salvific history and the whole tradition of interpreting the Bible through the lens of the church that Jesus gave us. So, but we take scripture as a whole. And so when we pull out um, all these statements, some statements are about the initial state of justification, some are about uh, right now, and some about some are about later at judgment time, right? So it's this threefold structure, very clear, past, present, and future, right in scripture. So let's look at uh, just a few scripture verses about Christians falling away or the warning of people falling away. St. Paul in the letter to the Romans in chapter 11, starting in verse uh, 19, he's talking to Gentiles. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. He's talking about how Israel was broken off of the old covenant and Gentiles are incorporated into the new covenant. And he continues, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches of uh, Israelites and the in Jewish faith, neither will he spare you. And in verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness, 
otherwise you too will be cut off. And again from St. Paul in Galatians 5.4, he's warning against the Judaizers that were saying that you need to be circumcised, you need to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. Like even as a Christian, you have to become Jewish first to be grafted on. And this is what he says about those who would fall back into that belief that you need to, that you'll be saved by the law of Moses as opposed to the law of Christ. He says in Galatians 5.4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. So he's implying that if you've fallen from grace, you were once in grace. So here we see Christians falling away because they are falling back into a uh, the law of Moses mentality as opposed to the law of Christ. St. Paul in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.19, he talks about, he says, by rejecting conscience, certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith. And we talked about conscience a few episodes ago within the series of salvation. So it's a great episode to listen to about conscience. And later on in that same letter uh, to Timothy, the first Timothy from St. Paul in chapter 5, verse 8, the whole context is St. Paul telling Timothy, the duties that all believers have towards their families and towards the other members of the body of Christ. And right in that whole context, uh, this is what St. Paul says about those who have um, given the responsibility to serve their families. This is what he says. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his own family, he has disowned the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here, St. Paul is clearly teaching that those who uh, reject certain aspects of the Christian faith and those who reject the service to their family members and what God has given them can truly fall from grace and have disowned the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, the author says this, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy, since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold, uh, hold him up to contempt. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 29, the author warns uh, the severity of sinning after coming to Jesus. He says this, For if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume their adversaries. A man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which, by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? And then again in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 38, the author quotes, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then in the second letter of St. Peter, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, St. Peter says this, They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of, slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and, and overpowered, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turns back to his own vomit. And the sow is washed only to wallow in the mire. 
So it's obviously very clear about the New Testament and the apostles warning people about, oh, warning people or actually talking about people who have fallen away and rejected Jesus after accepting him. And then uh, perseverance and endurance. Let's get into perseverance and endurance. So Jesus is very clear in the Gospels and in Revelation that he will judge us based on what we did, right? So we talked about that being judged on love in uh, one of our episodes. But just a little recap of what Jesus talked about. He says, take up your cross daily and follow me. And those who do not, those who do not deny themselves, renounce all that they have and even their own lives. And if, there's, if, they, if people love anything up above Jesus, then we are not worthy to be his disciples. Tough words. Uh, Jesus' parable of the sower, sowing uh, seed on the ground, and he talks about how some don't even receive the word because it's choked by the devil. Some people, it falls on rocky ground. They receive the word with great joy, and then they fall away. Or those people who have no root in themselves, so they receive the word, Jesus. They receive the word of God and hold on to it, but then the, then the lures of the world and temptation come in and they fall away. So here Jesus is clearly talking about people receiving the word and people falling away. The parable of the talents, people receiving talents and then not using them. It talks about the faithful and the unfaithful servant. And we talked about that in heaven, hell, and purgatory because it's clearly there right in Luke 12. He talks about those who do God's will who will be put in with the faithful. Those who do not do God's will and they beat and drink, they eat, beat, drink, consume, gluttony, lust, and all those things, that they, they will be put with the unfaithful. Or those who, then he talks about those who will receive a light beating or a heavy beating in purgatory when they do or do not know the way, but they try to follow it. Um, and then he, the wise and the foolish virgins, those who actually knew and actually went after Jesus, like the bridegroom is here, let's go get him. And I'm sorry, I don't know you. <laughs> So Jesus is obviously very clear about the the reality of being a disciple of Jesus's and um, the reality of sin and the reality that we can walk away and um, and even after receiving Jesus. So uh, and then actually just a few verses about what he says about perseverance and endurance in Matthew ten twenty two and the parallel verse in Mark thirteen thirteen Jesus says that you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 13, talking about the persecutions happening, Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. And right before that verse in Matthew 24, 13, Jesus is talking about and forewarning persecutions and false prophets. And in chapter, or in verse 12, he says, because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. So he's talking about people who are Christians who will be led astray, who will grow cold, who will fall away. So again, another reference of Jesus warning that Christians can leave him. Luke 21, 19, Jesus says, By your endurance, you will gain your lives. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And in verse 26 of that same chapter, He's, Jesus says, He who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations. So again, Jesus is being very clear about perseverance and endurance until the end. And now we're going to get into a litany of verses from the New Testament letters, St. Paul and Hebrews and James and Peter and John. Okay, starting with uh, St. Saint, Saint Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-4. through 4, And this is the great St. Paul telling people not to judge him. And what does he say in response? 
I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. So St. Paul being very clear that he examines his conscience. He has nothing against himself, but he's not the judge, right? So we are not God. We cannot judge ourselves. So we're walking with Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, St. Paul says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Well, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I pummel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So St. Paul, the great St. Paul, talking about him possibly losing his salvation if he does not persevere and continue and uh, after his preaching. In Galatians 6.9, St. Paul says this, Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And right before that, uh, St. Paul's talking about reaping and sowing to the flesh or the spirit. And it's the, the spirit that we need to be uh, sowing to in order to reap by the spirit of eternal life. In Philippians 2.12, St. Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And in 13, he says, For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, St. Paul says this to Timothy, Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Hold to that, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, St. Paul says this, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which in Christ Jesus goes with eternal glory. The saying is sure, if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, the, the author writes, For we are in Christ, if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. Chap, uh, in that same chapter, uh, verse 11, the author writes this in Hebrews, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, and that no one fall by that same sort of disobedience. And then later on in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 through 12, the author writes this, And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then also again in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 36 through 39, the author writes, For you have need of endurance, so that you may do the will of God and receive what is promised. For yet a little while in the coming one shall come and shall not tarry. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and keep their souls. And in Hebrews uh, 12, chapter 12, verses 3 through 6, the author writes, Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
And have you forgotten the exhortation which addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor lose courage when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then moving into the letter of James, chapter 1, verse 12, James says, Blessed is the man who endures trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In verse 25 of that same chapter, uh, James says, But he who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer that forgets, but a doer that acts, he shall be blessed in his doing. And then First Peter chapter 2, verse 19, St. Peter says, For one is approved, if, mindful of God, he endures pain while suffering unjustly. And then the last one, 1 John chapter 1, verses nine, 7 and 9. Chapter, uh, verse 7, St. John says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we, have conf- if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's a continuation. It's a clear continuation of perseverance and endurance until the end. And just to bring this endurance part of this episode to a close, I want to read Romans 5, 2 through 5. Through him, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, endurance, suffering, continuing, all the way through trials and tests, it sounds difficult, but no, it's by the grace of Jesus. We abide in Him, we abide through Him, we have confidence of what's happening right now. We don't worry about the future, and we don't, when we look at our past through through the lens of mercy and love and remember his testimonies and what he's done in our lives and right here and now god is offering us grace to endure right now and continuing on to briefly talk about abraham's righteousness abraham's faith because a lot of times abraham gets uh, lifted up in the new testament about his faith and so a lot of people point to how abraham was considered righteous well actually in the new testament abraham is lifted up as an example of faith and his righteousness three times and there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? So uh, just as there's a threefold structure in our salvation, and this is goes along perfectly with how the New Testament shows Abraham. So the first instance of Abraham's righteousness is referenced in Hebrews 11.8, and it's referencing Genesis 12.2. Romans 4.3 is the second one, and it references Genesis 15.6. As you can see, it's, that's later on than Genesis 12. And then the last one is James 2.21. That's referencing Genesis 22. So here we see a threefold structure in the New Testament talking about uh, Abraham's righteousness and his faith that started off in Genesis 12 two when he was going to a place that he did not know he was to receive the inherit to receive an inheritance and then later on uh, talking about Genesis 15:6 so this second phase where he made a where God made a covenant with Abraham and promised him countless descendants. And then lastly, in Genesis 22, where he's offering his son Isaac to God. So we see this threefold structure that's a continuation, that he wasn't just made righteous and then didn't have to do anything after that. No, he continued. He continued persevering, pushing in into the promises of God, even when not being able to see. So he walked by faith and not by sight, right? Because it was not a reality for him yet what God was promising. And then to end this episode, I'm actually going to go through uh, these two chapters 
in this uh, Catholic Answers, they have these 20 Answers booklets. So it's, they're very small. They're perfect. They have so many topics. Um, and this one is from their 20 Answers book of salvation. So leveraging this booklet, we're going to define uh, what forgiveness, salvation, redemption, atonement, sanctification, and justification mean, and then how each of those are shown with this threefold structure in the New Testament. Okay, so first, forgiveness. It comes from a root word that meant to send off, to release, or to let go. Salvation, it's soteria in Greek. It's from a root, a root word that means to make safe. Redemption also has a Greek root that carries a similar meaning, though in the ancient world it was used to refer to buying back a slave or a person who had been taken captive in war. So redemption is being purchased back, redeemed, from, and it's also being saved or redeemed from various dangers, including slavery to sin. And then atonement. This is actually the only word in theology that actually has its root in English. So atonement means to uh, bring into harmony two parties, thus making at one. So atonement, you can see that right in the word, it's at one with each other. So bringing two parties into one. So in Jesus, the God-man, bringing harmony between God and man. Sanctification. This is also a Greek term. And it simply means to make holy. And then uh, justification also having its root in Greek. And it comes from a root that means to make right or to make just, to acquit or vindicate is what we uh, also can uh, translate it as. And one thing that's important to realize when we are talking about the relationship between justification that we just defined and righteousness is these terms are very closely linked. Though it's not obvious in English, the way our language developed, we didn't end up with a verb meaning to make righteous, and so the verb to justify is used instead. So in Greek, the terms for righteousness, which is, uh, I might screw this up, is diokosoni and justification. Diokosis are so clear, they're clearly related, even just saying them, they sound very, uh, very similar. They're so clearly related that it is obvious we are dealing with a single underlying concept of righteousness and, and justification. So rightness and justness. So it's important to remember when reading about righteousness and justification that the two concepts are somewhat interchangeable. And that's how we see it in the Bible. So let's get into actually the Bible showing each of these terms and how they're past, present, and future. So salvation. Uh, clearly, it's a past event, uh, such as Ephesians 2, 5, and 8, how St. Paul talks about the by grace you have been saved. And he talks about saved a lot in the past tense, uh, about being saved. But he also talks about being a present reality. So he says in Philippians 2.12 that we already read earlier, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And even uh, St. Peter in 1 Peter 1.9, he says, as the outcome of your faith, you obtain the salvation of your souls. The Greek word used by St. Peter right there is obtain is in the present tense, which in the original Greek suggests ongoing action, right? So the Greek is talking about ongoing action in St. Peter's uh, letters right there. And then also, salvation is talked about in the future sense. So Romans 13, 11, St. Paul says, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And in the first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul talks about how some people will be saved, but only as through fire and how that the spirit uh, may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And, and this is coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So that's salvation. So when people ask, have you been saved? You can We can say, I have been saved, I'm being saved, and I hope to be saved. And redemption also has this past uh, accomplished fact 
and a future event. So Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.13 talks about it being a past accomplished fact. Ephesians 1.7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in Romans 8.23, Ephesians 1.14, and Ephesians 4.30, it's talking about redemption in the future uh, as a future event. So Romans 8.23 says this, But not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Ephesians 1.14 says, that uh, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In Ephesians 4.30, St. Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And likewise, forgiveness also talks, Scripture talks about forgiveness as a past reality and an ongoing reality. Flipping back to Ephesians 1.7, St. Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Ephesians 4.32, St. Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Past tense. Colossians 1.14, talking about being transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 3.13, St. Paul writes about forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And the New Testament also shows forgiveness as an ongoing effect, such as Matthew 6.12, right in the middle of Jesus teaching the Our Father. What do we say every single day in the Our Father? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So we're asking for an ongoing forgiveness. And in James 5.15, this is when talking about the anointing of the sixth, James says, And the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up. And he, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and we will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So a continuation of forgiveness. Sanctification also has a past uh, reality and a ongoing reality. So in the past, 1 Corinthians 6, 11 and Hebrews 10, 10. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, St. Paul writes, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And Hebrews 10.10, 10, the author writes, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And also, sanctification is an ongoing reality or a, a something that's still happening. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, St. Paul writes, We beg and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you learn from us, you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, you do so more and more. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from immorality. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, St. Paul writes, May the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, the author writes, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And Hebrews 10 verse 14, it says, by, For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. 
So again, sanctification being a past reality and a something that's still happening, that's continuing. And then lastly, on justification and righteousness, it's a past reality and it's an ongoing or a future reality. So Romans uh, 5, 9, St. Paul writes, Since therefore we, have, we are now justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? And 1 Corinthians 6, 11, St. Paul writes, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So that is clearly a past reality. And it's also an ongoing reality, such as in Romans 2.13, Romans 3.20, and Galatians 5.5. 5. In Romans 2.13, St. Paul writes, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Romans 3.20, St. Paul writes, For no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 5, St. Paul writes, For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. And so clearly we see that salvation, forgiveness, redemption, sanctification, justification, righteousness has a past reality, a current reality, and a future reality. So, um, and lastly, this continuation, this process, this is continuing to abide in the presence of Jesus. And so it's not just an imputed faith, that word basically meaning like how it is, it is believed by some Protestants that we're basically uh, like dung. This is how Luther explained it. We're like dung. And then Jesus, by faith, he basically just covers us with snow. But the reality is that he infuses that snow so that our dung can be transformed into God's likeness that he actually, when he actually, when the word of God speaks, things actually happen. Let there be light. There was light. Rise, take up your mat and walk. The kid <laughs> took up his mat and walked. Little girl, arise, I say to you, walk. Like when Jesus speaks, things happen. And so when Jesus speaks, when Jesus cleanses, when Jesus justifies, when he sanctifies, forgives, redeems, it's actually happening. It's not something that is outside of us, but Jesus in us, abiding live us. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, that as long as I walk in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is a continued reality, right? So God is transforming us inside out. And this is why it it's a, comes out of a relationship. It is every single day just choosing to hold all thoughts captive to Christ, to walk in the ways of Christ, to uphold the law of Christ, right? So uh, this is why it's a process. It's such a beautiful process. And it's a gift. Like blessed are those who are, uh, who are, uh, who are poor in spirit. Rejoice in your weaknesses. Why? So that the Spirit of God may rest upon you. That is the it's Christ's strength within us. So in our weaknesses, in our broken uh, human flesh that wants to sin, that wants to do these things, lean in on the Spirit. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Jesus, He gave us the Spirit. Walk by it. He wants us every single day. He wants to be our Savior. Jesus, God saves. Emmanuel, God with us. This is a every single day and every moment reality. Let's abide in the presence of God. Trust and know in, divine, in, in all divine providence that he works good for all those who love him here and now and in the future. And he will bring to completion the good work that he has started in us of sanctification, redemption, forgiveness, righteousness, justification, and being fully made perfect perfectly in love so that when we are uh, enter into heaven, just as we talked about in the in the topic of purgatory, when we enter into heaven, we will be fully healed people. We will be fully human. We will be fully alive in God's presence, abiding in the uh, very nature of God, which is perfect love. So just a quick recap. Are you saved? 
Are you redeemed? Are you forgiven? Are you sanctified? Are you justified or righteous? The biblical way, the Catholic way. I was saved. I'm being saved. And I hope to be saved entirely by the grace and love of God that transforms me, mind, heart, soul, and body into the image of his beloved son. 